This is Father Byron Hagen, a priest of the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis, offering some reflections inspired by the Deep Down Things podcast with Brad Beerzer on the Christian humanism of Russell Kirk. The genesis of Christian humanism is to be found in the apostolic age of Christianity, when in the incarnation of the eternal word and the man Jesus Christ, the good news of God's concrete self-revelation in history united and synthesized and transformed particular cultural worldviews into something like a universal wisdom. The civilization known as Christendom is the flower and fruit of that wisdom's birth in human society, and Christendom was never simply a European phenomenon, but encompassed also the upper regions of Africa and that zone of the world now known as the Middle East. The educational program of Christendom engaged every aspect of human culture, and it was the very standard of what it meant to be an educated person. This program was based on the study of classical languages, literature, law, and history of the ancient Greco-Roman world, the Bible, the writings of the Church Fathers of the First Millennium of Christianity, and the Christianized Greek philosophy, integrated by a systematic theology eventually codified in the monasteries and medieval universities. After the 13th century, this program became increasingly translated into more popular forms, such that it had by the 16th century become, in Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, and even for a brief but glorious time, Muslim versions, the very soul of a civilization. At its most effective and fruitful moments, this education created the universal man, the man who can, in the words of C.S. Lewis, become a thousand men and yet remain himself. It was a liberal education in the pure classical sense of the term liberal, an education for liberty by which a freedom-loving people could become free and remain free. This education protected a man, as G.K. Chesterton put it, from the degrading slavery of being a child of his age. As C.S. Lewis notes, every age has things which it sees clearly and also its blind spots. A liberal education which demands that the student read the old books helps him by showing him what his own age has missed as well as what it sees, as the vision and blindness of former ages are unlikely to be the same vision and blindness of our own. Much more than simply being well-rounded or knowledgeable, The person of liberal education knows where his ideas have come from and are able to understand their arc of evolution and devolution, how they've gone right as well as how they've gone wrong, thus making for a truly critical standpoint. A liberal education fosters humility and circumspection, making for an intellectual outlook conditioned by a spirit of gratitude and reverence, which does not eradicate, but which does temper the critical spirit. In sum, the person of humane education is a person not simply of his time, but also of tradition. To be traditional does not mean to give thoughtless adherence to old forms, but rather to give a thankful reverence and respect for those who have gone before, who are accepted also as legitimate members of society with a legitimate creative voice, what Chesterton called the democracy of the dead, what the ancient Romans called pietas. I might add, furthermore, that one who respects the dead is far more likely to respect the living than one who lives as though he has sprung from nothing and owes nothing to anyone who has gone before him. If I imagine that I owe nothing to my ancestors, 
It follows that I imagine I owe nothing to the person standing next to me, and this is not a promising outlook from which to build a harmonious society. But at any rate, well before the critical categories of late modernity came into view, I mean those categories defined by the prefix post, as in postmodern, postcolonial, postwestern, even postchristian, there was a movement in later modern European thought which has become known as rationalism, a subset of so-called Enlightenment intellectual theory the object of the rationalist critique was precisely the older classical and medieval outlook which rationalists called dogmatic, that is, a worldview based on received truths and the authority of tradition rather than logically controlled empirical investigation. In order to make human knowledge more precise, so that the world could better be brought to heel, as it were, the rationalist project of the European Enlightenment introduced into Western culture the seeds of a new critical approach to knowledge, which began to bring the old intellectual order to a close. By the total embrace of the newly exacting standard of knowledge, built on the model of the newly flourishing special sciences, Enlightenment rationalism grew overconfident. On account of the success of the special sciences, the older principle of epistemic moderation was forced to give way to the hubris of scientists who imagined that a perfect and total system of the world could be produced from necessary principles universally self-evident to the educated person. Now, the failure of this so-called Enlightenment rationalism has long been self-evident to all. In the wake of the 20th century's two world wars and their attendant atrocities, the confidence of the European enlightened man was shaken to its core. And how could it not be? What the West had gained in technical mastery of the world, it had lost in self-mastery, in knowledge of the meaning of the human being as person. Western hubris has been succeeded by Western despair. In place of enlightenment self-confidence, there have risen up, since the late 19th century, a host of critical theories, positing a mass of new determinisms, this time not physical but rather historical, theories which have assailed the very foundations of Western culture, its science, philosophy, theology, politics, and law, and in a prolonged fit of cultural self-hatred have destroyed the notion of individual human free agency along with the possibility of any conception that would allow to tradition a constructive, positive role in the education of the human person. The scientific mind, nurtured for long ages in the West, has now turned to the task of taking itself apart. The nihilism that attends this outlook is also patently evident. And the irony of the situation is bitter. The critical shift in contemporary Western thought began as an extension of the rationalist critique of the older so-called dogmatic medievalism. The new critics charged that rationalism denied the subjective agency of persons in the appropriation of knowledge and reduced the social and cultural aspect of knowledge to the category unscientific, and for these reasons, rationalism was anti-human. But in its maturity, the critical shift has itself issued in a host of new hegemonies, more socially oppressive than any modernist Enlightenment epistemology had ever produced, 
that is, a mass of identity groups, both in strategic alliance and in competition for access to social and political power over against any group deemed by them to be oppressive. What struck me as most salient in the conversation with Brad Beerzer on Russell Kirk's Christian humanism is not the explication of humanism itself, however, but rather the concrete manifestation of the Christian humanist vision in the very person and life of Russell Kirk. What comes to the fore in this discussion can be formulated thus. Perhaps it is, in the end, the very sort of person that a liberal education produces that will remain the only credible argument for the return of this education. Kirk was something like a one-man fountain of humane culture. The little corner of the world in which he concretely lived was an oasis in the desert of postmodern society, a lighthouse for those in need. The family culture, which grew up around Kirk at Piety Hill in Macosta, Michigan, was a truly inclusive community which respected all persons as persons, which exemplified the classical virtue of hospitality, the welcoming of the stranger as one bearing the very image of God. The witness of Piety Hill gives the lie to the charge that the older ideas were fundamentally corrupt and anti-human, for what Piety Hill achieved to no small degree is precisely the opposite of the effect of the contemporary critical ideologies which now pervade our institutions. Peace, harmony, unity and diversity, inclusion, freedom, justice. If a truly humanistic learning is to be recovered, we will have to do more than simply dust off again the old books, for the critical postmodern reads the old books as well, although he does not love them, nor the ideas they contain, nor the men who wrote them, nor the culture which made them possible. The new humanism will have to take into account the new books as well, and the history of their ideas, including what they've seen clearly as well as what they have not. The new humanism must be, in addition, more than an academic or intellectual program. It will have to be a program of human community, beginning in a counter-society which seeks practically to embody the Christian values which gained for societies in the past that privileged epistemic standpoint which achieved so much, which saved the remnants of the old civilization, purified them, and with the leaven of the Incarnation gave birth to something new. The seeds of this society are to be found even now, for the one whose eyes are open to them, for those seeds have never been wholly lost. And how could they have been? for they are the seeds of the eternal word incarnate. This has been Father Byron Hagen, the Deep Down Things podcast, which you can find on the web at patreon.com slash deepdownthings. I look forward to being with you again for more reflections. All blessings to you. <laughs>